Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, found on page 961 in the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I will be uh, reading verses 1 through 20. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church. But by grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for God's grace to understand, to receive, and to obey this portion of His Holy Word. Pray with me. Father God, we come to hear an incredible message this morning. A message about a man of flesh and blood being raised from the dead. Father, do not allow us to miss the incredibleness of that story. Do not allow us to miss how hard it is to believe. 
because of how far out of the range of our normal experience it is. Father, it is not just a fable. It is not just fiction. It is not just an encouraging account. But it is news, good news, that Jesus Christ, Your Son, who took to Himself a human nature, who lived a real life, who was crucified upon a real cross, who was buried in a real grave, on the third day rose again from the dead. Father God, allow us to understand, allow us to receive, and allow us to be transformed by this good news this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a popular uh, preacher who presents the good news of Christianity as a formula or a, a set of principles for attaining your best life now. I have to admit that I bristle against such a misrepresentation of the gospel. I have to admit that when I, when I hear someone reduce the gospel to a, to a formula for, for simply making your marriage better or for, for getting ahead in life or for getting the job you want or, or for achieving whatever other success it is that you have set your heart upon, I cringe. But at the same time, I have to admit that I have sometimes fallen into a very similar trap. I have to admit that while I have never proclaimed a health and wealth gospel, I'm much too enlightened for that, while I have never proclaimed a straight out health and wealth gospel, I have at times effectively reduced the gospel to a set of principles for living life as it was meant to be lived. A set of principles for how to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This morning, Paul reminds us that the gospel is more than instructions for living. The gospel is more than a set of principles for ordering our lives. Our gospel is more than a set of rules that we can follow in order to please God and earn His blessing. The gospel is good news. It is news of what God has done in space and time on behalf of His people. And it is good news because it is the news of what He has done to redeem His people. To set them free from the guilt and, and condemnation that was theirs by birth because of sin. The gospel centers around the good news of what God has done to redeem His people from the power of sin and death through the finished work of His own Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice, here in this chapter, Paul is giving us his own summary of the gospel that he proclaimed. He, he is giving us a statement of what he thought was of first 
importance. And when you read it, you cannot miss the emphasis upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the heart of Paul's Gospel is Jesus' sacrificial death and His bodily resurrection from the dead. In fact, Paul is so bold as to say that without these, without His death and resurrection, and particularly His resurrection, there is no Gospel. There is no good news. Our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. And those who have died believing in Him, hoping that that was going to be their salvation, they have not been saved. But they have merely perished. So then you see the significance of Easter. You see why we take this day to to remember and to celebrate Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. We are not here this morning simply to recount a good story. An encouraging story. A story of of hope. A story of of triumph against all odds. A a story of overcoming insurmountable obstacles. A a story of, of rising victorious from the ashes. A story of new beginnings. I've heard people talk about, about Easter that way, about, about the fact that it's a, it's a chance to turn over a new leaf, about the, it's a chance to, to start anew. Well, it may be that. But if you reduce Easter to a good story, then you eradicate the good news. We are here this morning to remember and to celebrate a historical event. The event that is the very source and foundation of our hope. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In his book, The Contemporary Christian, John Stott suggests that that given the importance of Easter, given the importance of, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, there are three questions that we must answer. Questions that Paul answers here in this chapter. First, we must answer the question of definition. What does it mean to say that Jesus rose from the dead? Next, we must answer the question of fact. Did it really happen? Is this true story? Is this actually news? And third, the question of relevance. Is it important? Does it matter? Why should I care? I want to take these three questions as my outline this morning. First, What does it mean? The question of of definition. What does it mean to say, as Paul does in verse 4, that on the third day He rose again from the dead? Now I know that to some, maybe even to most of you here this morning, this seems like a superfluous question. An unnecessary question. And indeed, for, for much of church history, it would have been an unnecessary question to answer explicitly. Because the answer, the the correct answer, was assumed by nearly everyone. When you spoke of Jesus' resurrection, people knew what you were talking about. But it is not so today. Today we must be careful to define our terms because when we are speaking of Jesus' resurrection, we have to understand that there are a whole list of understandings out there, a whole list of alternative definitions, alternatives to the historic Orthodox understanding of of the Christian church throughout the ages. First, there are some that say 
that resurrection simply means that, that Jesus has an ongoing influence in or, or through His disciples, through those who are His followers. That He lives in the sense that, that His teaching continues to, to exercise an influence on the people who believed in Him. Much the way that Plato or, or Socrates or any of the other ethical teachers throughout history have influenced those who followed them and, and continue to have an influence today as their works are, are read and practiced. Jesus, in this sense, is no different than many others who have had a great impact upon the world in which we live. But while it is certainly true that Jesus continues to have an influence in and through His disciples, this is not what we mean. This is not what Scripture means when it speaks of His resurrection from the dead. One step beyond the idea of ongoing influence is the idea of, of spiritual presence. There are others who suggest that Jesus' uh, Jesus's resurrection means that, that He, His Spirit, has survived His physical death and now somehow abides with and, and encourages His disciples. If you've ever seen these Star Wars movies, you can, you can think of Obi-Wan Kenobi abiding, his abiding spiritual presence with Luke Skywalker after he has been struck down by Darth Vader. It's, it's this weird, ethereal uh, spiritualism where His Spirit somehow continues to abide. Well, again, it is true that Jesus abides with His disciples through the ministry of His Holy Spirit. But this is not what we mean when we speak of His resurrection. When we say that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, we mean that Jesus, the man, rose bodily from the dead. But even here, we must guard against misunderstanding. We, we must be careful to point out that, that when we say that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, we do not mean merely that He was resuscitated in the way that Lazarus and others have been resuscitated throughout history. There have been others who have been raised back to life only to have all their dying yet before them again. Lazarus was not resurrected in the same way that Jesus was. Lazarus was, was brought back to life only to die again. Jesus' life, His resurrection life, is something totally different. When we say that, that Jesus was raised back to life, we mean that He was raised to resurrection life. He was raised to a, a, a new life, a transformed life. He was raised... Never to die again. Look later in this chapter, chapter 15 at verse 42. Look how Paul describes resurrection. He writes, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That is, it's mortal. It dies. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in, in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Not an immaterial body, but a spiritual body. A body that is perfectly in tune with the working of the Holy Spirit. This is resurrection life. 
When we say that Jesus rose from the dead, we mean not only that He came back to life, but that He conquered death. Jesus Christ defeated death once and for all. So that its sting is gone. Its victory is overturned. That we are now have a hope of something imperishable. Jesus never to die again. This is what it means when we speak of His resurrection. Raised imperishable. Raised glorious. Raised powerful. Raised spiritual. Jesus not only eluded death for a time, but He conquered it once and for all. That is what it means to say that Jesus rose again from the dead. But this brings us to our second question. Is it true? Did it really happen? The second question is the question of historicity. And it is a question that we must answer. That Jesus was crucified. That He died. That He was buried is is virtually undisputed. The question is whether or not He rose again. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you have a right to be suspicious. Because it is an incredible claim. It is a claim that we ought not to believe easily. It is a claim that demands evidence and strong evidence at that. So then what evidence do we have that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead? The first evidence that many people point to is their personal knowledge of their living Savior. There is a a popular Easter song that goes something like this. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Now, I understand the sentiment of that song. And Paul himself tells us that that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are, through Jesus Christ, the children of God. We do know in an existential, real way our living Savior. But we must recognize that He lives within my heart is not a very strong argument. We must recognize that we need better evidence than this to believe such an incredible claim. A second piece of evidence that many people point to is the empty tomb. Now this is more in line with the type of evidence that we should be looking for. But again, I ask you, is it enough? Is the empty tomb enough? That the tomb was empty is again accepted by most. But the explanations for why it was empty are manifold. One explanation that we can readily dismiss, an explanation you may have heard somewhere along the way, is is often referred to as the swoon theory. The, The idea that maybe Jesus didn't really die, that he just simply swooned upon the cross, and then when he was placed in the in the cold tomb, it it somehow revived him. Well, I suggest to you that such an explanation is ridiculous. It is patently impossible 
that Romans who are quite well trained in the art of killing people would somehow miss the fact that Jesus was still alive. In fact, Pilate himself questioned, are you sure he's dead already? Go check. Go, go thrust a spear into his side and see if he's really dead. But not only that, if it were, if it were possible that the Romans got it wrong, that they took him off the cross before he was dead, again, it is manifoldly unlikely that being placed in a tomb would revive him, especially to the point where he could come out of the tomb in such health that he could convince his disciples that he had conquered death. If he had merely swooned, he would have been sick. He would have been weak. This is not the Jesus who his disciples need. And so the swoon theory can be quickly dismissed. A second explanation that is sometimes offered is that someone stole his body, either the authorities or or his disciples. And again, I think we can say quite confidently that the, the authorities didn't steal his body. If they did... If they had it, they would have simply brought it out to to shut up these people who were turning the world upside down by by proclaiming Jesus Christ raised from the dead. But what about his disciples? Is it possible that his disciples stole the body? Again, people suggest that it is unlikely that the disciples stole the body because would they have really been willing to, to proclaim a known lie? In the face of such opposition and persecution, think of, think of Peter before the Sanhedrin in Acts 3 and 4. Would he have been so bold if he had known that the whole thing was a hoax? If he had known that the whole thing was rested upon their own stealing of the body out of the grave? Now, I will grant to you that it is unlikely. But again, it's not impossible It is at least conceivable that the disciples were so committed to Jesus' teaching that they would have been willing to fabricate the story of the resurrection to get more followers, even if it meant risking their lives. It's, It's unlikely, but it is at least conceivable. It's conceivable that maybe the disciples stole the body. So then, while the empty tomb is more like the evidence that we ought to be looking for, something objective, something verifiable, something beyond the merely subjective and experiential, the empty tomb by itself is not sufficient. And I think it is important that we admit this. Because it is important for us to admit before the whole world that the type of evidence necessary for us to believe something as incredible as the resurrection is more than just an empty tomb. It's important Because the God who we believe in is a God who never asks His people to take a leap in the dark. He is a God who never asks us to to act on insufficient evidence. He is not a God who reveals Himself privately in caves and then asks the rest of the world to believe. He is a God who who acts publicly in verifiable ways. And so what is the evidence that we need? It is the evidence of eyewitness testimony. And not just one or two people, but the evidence of many people who've seen Him publicly at various times and in various places. And that is exactly the evidence that Paul points to here in 1 Corinthians 15. Look what he writes there beginning at verse 5. He says, Then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, why does Paul include that little phrase, most of whom are still alive? Is it not because he is saying, listen, if you don't believe me, check it out. Go, go talk to them. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes. We have eyewitness testimony. Not from one person, not from a few people, but from more than 500 people who have seen Jesus brought from the dead. Not the least of which is Paul, who he calls, who he refers to himself as one untimely born because he saw the resurrected Lord after his ascension. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is a fact of history confirmed by numerous eyewitness accounts. Confirmed exactly by the type of evidence that we ought to demand if we are going to believe such an incredible account. This then brings us to our third question. So what? Why does it matter? Is it important? This is the question of relevance. Is Jesus' resurrection relevant for us today? Now, I do not have time this morning to recount everything that the New Testament has to say about the relevance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So I want to limit myself just to what he says here, to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is this, that Jesus' resurrection from the dead assures us of the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I know when... Some people hear that, they think, well, that's not exactly the type of relevance I was looking about. That's just that, that religious talk that, that you Christians resort to so often. When I, when I speak about relevance, I'm, I'm looking for help with my life here and now. I'm, I'm looking for help with how to, how to relate to my wife or how to, how to get ahead at work or how to raise my children or, or how to spend my money. I, I'm looking for more practical teaching. The forgiveness of sins seems largely Irrelevant to many. I suggest to you that this is true for two reasons. First, people do not see sin as their most pressing or urgent need. Maybe you fall into this camp. You, you know you're not perfect, but you don't spend a lot of time worrying about your sin problem. Rather, the problems that demand your attention are the, the more practical problems of everyday life. When you talk about Relevance, you mean instruction for improving your life here and now. The second reason that people are not interested in the forgiveness of sins is that they're pretty sure they're going to be forgiven. After all, isn't that what God does? Isn't that the business God is in? Isn't, isn't He a God of, of forgiving sins? Why do we need to worry about it? Why should I be concerned? But this is where you are this morning thinking that the forgiveness of sins isn't all that relevant to your life, then I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Whether you know it or not, you have no more pressing need than the forgiveness of sins. First, the practical instruction that you are interested in, the, the human wisdom and discipline that you so long for, these can, in fact, help you to live a better life here and now. But the best of human wisdom and, and the best of human discipline cannot protect you from the brokenness of this world. 
You think what you need is better instructions about marriage or, or parenting or succeeding at work or, or making friends or, he, or handling stress or, or being healthy. But the best instructions that this world has to offer cannot guarantee your life. They cannot protect you from the unexpected accident or, or the unanticipated diagnosis from your doctor. They cannot protect you from the sins of others. They, they cannot guarantee your life. You will always find yourself too weak. You will always find the instruction incomplete. You will, you will always find the world uncooperative with your plans. Factors be far beyond your control can undo even the best laid plans of men in a moment. But there is a second reason you need the forgiveness of sins. Not only is instruction un, uh, uh, insufficient, not only do you need something more than wisdom, not only do you need God on your side working out the details for you, but there is a second reason. In Exodus 34 we read, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the God that so many people today believe in. The God whose business it is to forgive sins. But in that very same paragraph, we also read, But He will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is gracious. He is also righteous. And there is a day coming when His righteous wrath against sin will be revealed. And on that day, the pursuit of success in marriage or family or career, as important as they are, will seem rather silly if you pursued them while neglecting to deal with your sin problem. Simply stated, we need something more than human wisdom. We need God, the God who is our Maker, the God who is the sovereign Lord of space and time. We need Him directing and protecting our lives. But there's a problem. Rather than having God's blessing, by nature, we have His curse. We read in Isaiah 59 that your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have, have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. You have been separated from God's favor. You've been separated from His blessing by your sins. And so therefore, there is nothing you need more than to have the guilt of those sins dealt with once and for all. But how? How can we deal with our sin problem? The God who is there, the God who has spoken through His prophets and, and His apostles, and, and most emphatically through His Son, tells us that He will not clear the guilty. He will not simply overlook sin. He, he will not sweep it under the rug. He cannot. To do so would be to violate His own righteousness and holiness. And if you stop and think about it, you wouldn't really want Him to anyway. You wouldn't want God to, to simply overlook sin. You may want Him to overlook your sin, but you certainly want Him to deal with, with other people's sin. Would any of us want to live in a country without any law enforcement at all? Would, would anyone want us to live where, where everyone could do whatever they want without fear of consequences? Such a place would not be heaven but hell. God must deal with sin. God must execute judgment. But the wages of sin is death. And we are all sinners. Each and every one of us without 
exception. How can we be forgiven? We cannot atone for our own sins because we already owe God perfect obedience and and we cannot possibly do more than what is required of us to, to make up for the sins that we have already committed. Our only hope then is a substitute. Our only hope is for someone to lay down his life as the ransom for our life. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. Look with me again at verse 3. Paul says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died as the sacrifice for our sins that through His shed blood we might have forgiveness. But how do we know that His sacrifice was effective? How do we know that, that it was accepted by God? How do we know that our forgiveness has in fact been secured? Only through the resurrection. In his letter to Timothy, Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as his vindication. It shows us that death had no hold on him, that death had no claim on him, because he had no sins of his own. It shows us that God raised him from the dead, justifying him, that all those who believe in him might likewise be justified. It shows us that the sacrifice was accepted and the forgiveness of sins was secured. That is why Paul says, without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the sacrifice wasn't good enough. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. But in fact, He did rise from the dead. He did rise from the thir- on the third day. And because He did, we now know that we can be reconciled to our God. Hear this. Our salvation is only as real as the resurrection. If the resurrection is just a good story, so is our salvation. But if the resurrection is good news, if it is the good news of what took place in space and time, then so is our salvation. If you are like me, you sometimes forget the reality of your salvation. You sometimes forget the reality of your forgiveness and and you begin to wonder. You begin to to question your relationship to God. You, You begin to wonder if He is for you. At such times, celebrate Easter. Whether it's today, whether it's six months from now, celebrate Easter. Remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead not just as an ongoing influence on His, pres- on his disciples, not, not just as a, as a spiritual presence, but bodily transformed. He rose from the dead. And because He did, you now have the sure and certain hope that your sins are forgiven and that one day you too will be raised with Him to new life in the new heavens and the new earth. And because that hope is as certain as Jesus' resurrection, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we thank You for good news. We thank You that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And we thank You for the hope that is ours through His resurrection. Father God, please help us to know and to remember today and each day that our salvation is as sure as our Savior's resurrection. 
And that His resurrection is confirmed not by slight evidence, but by the evidence of eyewitnesses who over many days saw Him, ate with Him, talked with Him, spent time with Him, and knew Him beyond any reasonable doubt to be alive. Father God, I thank You for that good testimony. I pray that You would give us the faith to receive it and to live in its truth. To the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.